uh, March the 22nd, 2015, lecture uh, discussion number 191 on the book of Romans. And as per usual, the week interval, as Bill brought up in the pregame here, the, in the week interval has brought many things to look at and reflect upon. This is some interesting times we're in. Not the least of these things is uh, the United States threatening Israel with United Nations sanctions. Have you been following that? And they're going to, they're implying that the sanctions against Israel will go forward if the Prime Minister of Israel resists further the intent of the current negotiations between the United States and Iran. And I know that the executive branch will protest what I'm going to say, but the obvious conclusion of these U.S.-Iran Iran conferences is Iran quickly acquiring weaponized nuclear capability. And when they get that, they will not hesitate. They will, without delay, deploy that weaponry against the nation of Israel. It will be, if we get it on Tuesday, we launch it on Wednesday. They won't sit on it. Why won't they sit on it? Because they're afraid Israel will destroy it. As soon as they get it, they will use it. The Iranians do not stutter. There is no possibility we're misunderstanding them. They will immediately attempt to kill every Jew they can anywhere they can reach. And Christians will likewise be targeted. Christians are being eliminated from the Middle East as I'm standing here. They are being eradicated or they are fleeing because they know they'll die if they stay. The Iranian regime is apocalyptic. They yearn for worldwide war. And our government at its highest level is hell-bent to accommodate them. And yes, hell-bent exactly defines the situation as it now exists. So you have to ask immediately, seeing this situation, is this the birth pangs of the Ezekiel 38 prophecy? I've been asking that now for a couple of years. Bill got up and said, Bill the Fast for you folks on the internet, got up and said that uh, in his lifetime, he's never seen this country do what we're doing. I won't reveal how old he is, but uh, you've seen a lot of presidents, haven't you? I see nothing that suggests that this isn't the beginning of Ezekiel 38. United Nations recently deemed Israel, if you notice this, the worst country uh, with regard for women's rights. You see that? They picked one country in all the world that they believe is uh, in violation of women's rights. They didn't pick Iran. They didn't pick Yemen. They didn't pick, pick Saudi Arabia, uh, who uh, routinely mutilate and are horrible to women. But they picked Israel. And the Bible says that hatred for Israel is, a, is of supernatural origin. It is not rational. And it is therefore evidence or proof that the sign of Israel is from God. So everything about Israel, the sign of Israel we've been discussing, one of the proofs that it is true is this irrational worldwide hatred that comes for Israel. And so... We have a United Nations, as you know, that uh, 
is completely filled to the brim with anti-Semitism. The whole point of the organization is to attack Israel now. It's of no value except for that. That is a fulfillment of the sign of Israel as Scripture describes it. Now, I want you to consider if Israel destroys preemptively uh, with permanency Iran's nuclear capability. And are they able to do that? If they can get their planes into position, can they take out those nuclear systems in Iran? They have refueling issues, I understand, by the way. Uh, will, our United, will our military fuel those planes for Israel to do that job? That's an interesting aspect. What, what will the corridor be, airspace corridor, to allow this to happen? But does Israel have the capability to launch preemptively against Iran and permanently eliminate their weapon systems? The answer is yes, they do. What say they do it? What comes next? How will Russia respond? How will China respond? What is the most powerful military now in the Middle East outside of Israel? It's Iran. They have gone past Saudi Arabia. Egypt is right there, but Iran, if they get nuclear war weaponry, is certainly more powerful then. They're into Syria. They're into Yemen. They're into Libya. They're into, uh, they're all over the, the the Middle East now, the Iranian influence. If they're wiped out and all they have is their infantry, what's Russia going to do? What's China going to do? A power vacuum uh, would instantly, instantaneously occur and the militaries of that region uh, would not hesitate. No hesitancy. They abhor, everything abhors a vacuum and militaries especially. They will move. At least the Russians are going to move. And by the way, who would stop them? Let me ask that another way. Upon whose side would the United States align? I think for the first time in Bill's lifetime, in my lifetime, that question cannot be answered. Until now, for my entire life, the President of the United States was assumed to be on the side of Israel. Remember your Genesis 12. The Abrahamic covenant, I will curse those who curse Israel. I will bless those who bless Israel. We have, a, we have an executive branch that is so hateful and hostile, openly so, towards Israel that uh, and facilitating the nation of, of Iran. On the converse there, or the inverse, never has that happened. We cannot assume with any certainty that our current presidential administration will be on the side of Israel in a military event. And that is a prophecy revealed. Understand that. That is telling you that the sign of the nation of Israel is happening. It continues to emerge. A new peace connects each and every week. We get something new that tells us that this sign is being fulfilled. And we live in perilous times, if not the time of the end of the age of the Gentiles. So what are we supposed to do? We're supposed to be comforted. These things must happen, he said. They must happen. 
And we're supposed to keep watch. Okay? A couple other items of business to address this week. Uh, I brought with me, and this is really amazing. I, I can't do it justice. You'll see why in a second. I brought with me, uh, I have been having this correspondence with Louise from Pennsylvania. Her real name is Louise, but I call her Louise. Um, I thought you would find it interesting. Let me just give you a little brief understanding of it. I mean, I can't, I can't do it justice. I really can't. There, there it is. Um, and I thought you'd find it interesting. Louise from Pennsylvania is quite representative of our vast internet audience and, um, uh, Every time I get somebody like her, and I got, I've gotten quite a few, as you know, it's just a delight. In fact, so much is she representative that many of you have that I've shared this with have become suspicious of Louise, uh, is suggesting that she's actually a pseudonym uh, for Sharon from Texas. And you know Sharon. I've read quite a bit of her, right? So I want Louise, if you're listening, and I know uh, you're on the uh, other website, so we're going to try to take care of that. I'll give your your material here to uh, Supper Dave, and he'll contact you. But I don't want you to be offended, Louise, or are you either, Sharon, for that matter. The class here at Cliffside has long thought that I am the actual author of all of my letters and email. It's their default position. They think that it is mathematically unlikely that anyone would write someone possessing my eccentricities. At least anyone who is not currently institutionalized, either in a psychiatric facility or a correctional facility or some combination. In which case, the male is identified, so everybody here is suspicious. And the, and the class reasons, Louise, that if by some statistical anomaly I did indeed receive a letter from a verifiable real person, it would not be civil. <laughs> it would be certainly not complimentary. It would be hate mail. So th- therefore, they, uh, the class believes that uh, any mail that is outside those parameters must be written by me, as I would be the only one so motivated. And I have to concede the logic of the hypothesis. Uh, I have to admit its uh, formidableness. And there is this amazing, eerie, similarity between Louise and Sharon, and some would say spooky. But I believe, at least for now, that uh, both are real and distinct. And again, Supper Dave and Kurt should inform each of the other, and they might write one another. And if they did, it would be a marvelous uh, collision of complex sarcasms. So let me read just a little bit of this. Uh, I can't read it all. As you can see, it's very lengthy. Um, We've been writing back and forth. I have to, I have to uh, give you some of the beginnings of it. She wanted to talk about Lot's wife, and she wanted to talk about Calvinism, specifically the extreme position in Calvinism that is taken hold so much now, as you know, that God is the author of evil, and um, so that's how we began. And I wrote this to her: as to Mr. Calvin. He had great difficulty resolving what he considered a contradiction between the omniscience of God and the limited free will, and therefore the personal accountability of man. Mr. Calvin ultimately decided that God's omniscience and timelessness required causation. What I mean by that, if God is omniscient, then he's causing everything. 
That's not true, in my view. Or at least his more extreme followers have so concluded. They have thus ended with God being the author of all sin, which is heresy. Jesus God is omnibenevolent. He has no sin in him ever. It is obvious, therefore, that absolute knowledge is not causation. God does not cause sin. So what then is the solution? Consider that existence requires free will. Without free will, there is no existence, merely the illusion of existence. It is not accidental that the extreme hyper-Calvinists and the evolutionary monists both agree and assert that there is no free will of any kind. The atheistic evolutionary philosophers are quite pleased to have the concession of the hyper-Calvinists on this fundamental issue. That should concern the hyper-Calvinists. Alas, it does not. Again, the discussion eventually resolves around the reconciliation of the judgment of sin, the ability to judge sin, which requires pure goodness and omniscience. Omniscience demands omnipotence, and omnipotence begets omnipresence, which then is in authority over time and the creation of time. All of that in the free will responsibility of mankind. And so I go on to say, and I end with this. Um, oh, I can't find it because uh, she interrupted me. Oh, here it is. One final consideration. What is the what is existence made of? S.A. Chronister. I left out some other aspects of that argument, but you 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 get the the gist of it. Here's what she writes. My mental capacity just collapsed and went on strike at the very thought of discussing existence. As you said above, without free will, there is no existence. I know that my spiritual existence is in the heavenlies because the Bible tells me so, and I accept that by faith. Am I copying out? Well, maybe. <laughs> uh, now, let me back up and read some more of it. I, I, can't, I can't do everything. And I want you to take a good look at it. My limited intellect, she says, may have lost you somewhere after the second sentence. And for that, I apologize. You speak of the hyper-Calvinists, and you know as I read your word, I might be using the man's name in vain. Somehow the word reformed might be a better choice. For none of these things of which you write can be discussed with my neighbors. That's not an accident, Louise. Having neighbors and discussing these things are incompatible. All my neighbors seemed works-based. The Amish, definitely so. She's in Pennsylvania. The Mennonites, even more profoundly so. And who knows what the Quakers are doing today? The Presbyterians, unapproachable. (laughs) The Bible churches want a contract signed when you walk in the door. Uh, I have not tried the Methodists. The Moravians have beautiful music, but there is a strangeness. (laughs) Anyway, uh, There is a Baptist group teaching the very thing of which you write, that God is the creator of evil, and that's true. You can find every denomination teaching that God is the author of evil. And they seem to have a big following, she goes on to say. Thus, my question concerning your affiliation. Everyone questions our affiliation, Louise. (laughs) Don't feel bad about that. I had listened to one of theirs and was brought up short with the evil authorship, when the the evil authorship was uh, exposed or espoused. Thanks for your teaching. Thanks for reading my emails. Thanks for allowing me to hang by my fingertips from your cliffside for a little while. So much to learn, so little time. Louise from Pennsylvania. So anyway, I would encourage you to read this. Louise, I'm giving this to 
Dave, and he will try to find you. I brought that up. I wanted to share that because just uh, when the world is looking like we're in chaos, on the brink of chaos, and we don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. We're in a period of time, I believe, that every day something it's starting to accelerate. We don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. That, by the way, is really good news. You, it, it, the times are changing so quickly. It's comforting to know that there's Louisie out there hiding. And she's not the only one. This Internet audience is extraordinary. And I can't even begin to, to tell you what it's like. And it's amazing to me. And uh, I'm just so grateful for it. But it's comforting to know that there are many, many of them hiding out there who are thinking what we are thinking. And that's why they're hiding. That's a joke, by the way. Anyway, thanks, Louise, for writing. I'm sure the authorities will be contacting you soon. As they have already, they're already on the trail of Jeffrey from Pennsylvania. So I can see that they can now diversify their efforts and uh, it's not going to be a problem. Okay. Let's keep moving now. Dana, in the second row, has been bowling over the bridesmaids of Matthew 25, 1 through 13. And Luke 12, 35 through 40. I won't put it on the board because it takes too much time. Clock. There's a cup in front of my clock. Hang on. Somebody broke my beautiful flashing green clock, apparently, or it's out for repair. I love that clock. It flashed and I couldn't miss it. Now I have to look down here at the audience, which is a terrible idea. Anyway, Dana has been mulling over the bridesmaids of Matthew 25, 1 through 13, uh, Luke 12, 35 through 40, Luke 13, 22 through 30. Now, it doesn't seem like those are the same thing, but you do, it's putting the pieces that are consistent together there. So, on the theory that if Dana is thinking of it, and Dana or one of you is considering a subject, and then others are going to as well, just won't talk about it as much, Let's. Uh, that means that I need to revisit it a little bit, and I'm going to do that very quickly. As you know, we did the bridesmaids, Matthew 25, and the evil servant that killed uh, in front of them, and of course the one man who was hiding the talent and had accused God of being evil, which is exactly what uh, Louise from Pennsylvania was covering. The people that declare God to be the author of evil never read the last parable of Matthew 25, where God says, no, I am not the author of evil. Oops. Anyway. Try to go fast. If you remember, I have proposed that the foundational key to correctly solving the three parables of Matthew 24, 45 through Matthew 25, 30 is uh, to know that there are three consecutive interconnected parables that cannot be separated. What I mean by that is there's three parables in a row, starting in Matthew 24, 45. I have the evil servant that thinks that Christ is not coming back, the master is not coming back quickly, so he begins to kill the other servants. I have the five bridesmaids that are wise and the five that are foolish. And, and that turns out to be a very complicated parable, as all three of them are. And then finally, I have the talents of gold distributed based on ability, and I have the third slave who has buried and hidden his and accuses Christ to his face of being the author of evil. Those three are... One, 
And if you know that, that's the key to it. There are three consecutive interconnected parables. You can't separate them, and they are really a three-piece whole. So those three are a triad of whole. And the bridesmaids are the second piece of that three-piece triad. And all three pieces refer to each other constantly. So while you're reading, if you decided to read the second one out of order, you will have to know that it refers to the first one and it also refers to the third one. And it provides clues. Each one provides clues to the meaning, of the clues and information to the meanings of the parables on either side. And if you want to think of it this way as an example, number one will add to number two and refer to number three. And number two will add to number three and refer to number one. And they all build on each other. And knowing that is happening while you're reading it is critical. If you don't know that, off into the ditch you go with those three parables. So Dana has been focusing on the bridesmaids. Matthew 25, 1 through 13. And specifically, these phrases. Lord, Lord. Open to us. And he says in return to them, they say that. And he says, assuredly, I do not know. there's anything God ever says to you, it better not be that. God says to the five evil bridesmaids that he does not know them. That should light you up. Note that I am saying that the five foolish bridesmaids are what? Evil. They're not, what's the word, scatterbrained. They're not mistaken. They didn't oversleep and set their alarm clock. I'm saying they're evil. And for that reason, the fact that he does not know them, God Christ, God, will not open the shut door. So I have a shut door. And God will not open it. And by the way, why does God call, I'm equating foolish with evil, why does God call them foolish? What's his definition of foolish? What is it that they're attempting to accomplish? They're, they're trying to accomplish something. What is it? They have a goal. And this all causes a flurry of questions to pour forth, as you know. And first amongst those would be the aforementioned motive of the five evil bridesmaids. Why do they even want to go through the door? What's on the other side of the door? What are they trying to get to? What's the plan here? 
He won't open the door. They come and they say, Lord, Lord, open to us. He says, I don't know you. Why do they even go to the door to say that? Obviously, on the other side of the door is the wedding feast, isn't it? There's a wedding feast. Why do they even want to get to the wedding feast? What would? Where's the bride, by the way? I haven't focused on that enough. That would be the second question I would want you to ask. What is the identity and the whereabouts of the bride? The bridegroom is clearly God, Jesus Christ, in this parable. I have five wise bridesmaids who get in and they have oil. I have five that don't take any oil. They're called foolish. They're evil. And they ask for the door to be open. And he says, I won't. I don't know you. Where is the bride herself? Who is she? Where has she been? How did she get where she is? How did she go where she went? When did all of this happen? And I submit uh, that the motive of the five evil bridesmaids at the door is identical to their, to their motive at verse 8. If you remember, I hope you do. I know I, I, I'm not reading it because I have, I have done so much of this already. But they say this, don't they? Let me erase shut door. You know the door's shut. They say this. Verse 8, ah, give us your oil. Now, some of your Bibles will say, will have, give us some of your oil. If you're following along, you might look. That some is in italics. It's not in the text. I'm saying to you that their motive at Lord, Lord, open to us is identical to their motive at give us your oil. Notice that the five foolish evil virgins make two demands. Give us your oil and Lord, Lord, open to us. And both demands have the same motive. Both demands, by the way, are void of all understanding. And therefore, they're foolish demands. But they're also lazy and stupid and evil and wicked demands. I know, you're thinking, wow, how did you get there? Well, let's keep moving then. Again, why did they want to enter through the door into the wedding feast? Are they wedding crashers? Do they, want, they don't want to miss the party, free food, friends are there. If you think that this demand, God open to us, Give us your oil. If you think those are just benign little phrases, discard that. Those are profoundly wicked. Give us your oil is a hateful, evil thing. Lord, open to us. Great disrespect. Are you going to go in front of Christ and say to him, Lord, open to me. Good luck with that. Who says that to God? No one has any understanding, that's for sure. So we know that they have no understanding at all. So who exactly are these five bridesmaids? And, again, and once more, what is their plan? And why is their plan foolish? What is the definition of foolish? Uh, when God uses it, does it mean untenable? Does it mean poor, poorly thought? Or does it mean completely and absolutely wrong, flawed, broken? We can answer this how. What's our usual method? 
how do we answer all these questions? Well, as per usual, right? We find another passage that has what? It has Christ at a door. Well, he's the doorkeeper. We find another passage to which Christ is allowing entry, where Christ knows and doesn't know. So, how hard's that? Not so hard. Looky here. We'll go to John 10. Let's read John 10. Now, some of you will say, well, you're just repeating the sermon you did just a few weeks ago. And that means you're not really spending any time working on your sermons. And I get, you know, you're just being lazy again. All of that might be true. Might be, but it's not really. I understand when, like I said, I, I realized as I went back through my notes that um, I did not do the, jo- the justice to this topic. And so uh, I didn't want to leave it behind. It's too important. But let's look at John 10, verse 1. Most assuredly, Christ speaking, most assuredly I say to you. See, here I have assuredly. I'm in really good shape right off the bat. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs up some other way, is the same, is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the doorkeeper opens, and the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. And when he brings them out, his own sheep, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, and they know his voice. Yet they will by no means follow a stranger, but will flee from the stranger, for they do not know the voice of strangers. Jesus used this illustration, but they did not understand the things which he spoke to them. Then Jesus said to them again, most assuredly, I say to you, I am the door. So he's not just the doorkeeper. He's not just the shepherd. He's the door, too. I am this door. I am the door of the sheep. All who come, who came before me are thieves and robbers. So if your position is that these are just innocent little girls that really don't know anything, kind of blondish, can't answer political questions, that's an inside joke. It's going to get me in trouble. Okay. That's a great line. Never answer, never ask a blonde a political question. Don't get mad at me if you're blonde. That's another inside joke. He says, those who come before me and say, Lord, Lord, open to us. If you have to ask him to open the door, you're already in what? Pretty serious, big wampum trouble. Because the door is open if you're a sheep. What are you if you're doing this? You're a thief and a robber. So if your position is these five bridesmaids are just happy-go-lucky kind of silly girls, you have totally misunderstood that parable. Can't be true. Most assuredly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep, and all who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and find find out, uh, go in and out and find pasture. The thief does not come except to do what? Why is he there? Except to steal and to kill and to destroy. 
Let me skip ahead here. I am the good shepherd, verse 11. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep, but a hireling is not the shepherd. One who come, who does not own the sheep sees the wolf coming, leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf catches the sheep and scatters them. The hireling flees because he is a hireling and, and does not care about the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and am known by my own. As the Father knows me, even so I know the Father. How much intellect does it take to know the Father? The Father is infinite. It takes infinite understanding to know the Father. They are the same. Sameness. I lay down my life for the sheep. Therefore, my Father loves me because I lay down my life that I might take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down. I have power to take it again. I can lay it down. I can take it up. I can lay it down. I can take it up. I can do it all day long. I have that power. I'm life itself. Okay? Now, I did not read it all, but you should. All of it explains the identity and the motives of the five evil bridesmaids. Is it not obvious who they are? And why they're at the door? And what their plan is? I hope it is obvious. They come to kill. They're killers. You read those five bridesmaids, you think killers. Who do they come to kill? They're coming to kill the what? The sheep. Who are the hirelings, by the way? Why is the question. Always the best question is why. Are they so foolish that they believe their plan is going to work? Do they plan to climb up some other way? Is that going to work? Do they think this is going to work? What's the answer? Yeah, they do. That's a big, huh? Don't they know that the door and the doorkeeper and the shepherd? Don't they know that's God? Nope. They ain't got that figured out. Yes. Well, uh, for those of you on the Internet, uh, Dave is trying to get ahead of the teacher again. And talk about Pharisees. That's on page nine. We're st- we're simply on page eight. So uh, we're going to disregard his questions on are they worse than Pharisees. Uh, so that's uh, I should I should do a better job of telling people where I'm going. So if somebody has some idea. Uh, yes, sir. I know. Yes, they lied about the oil. The oil in the, give us your oil and Lord, Lord, open to us are two profoundly wicked things. And when you grasp it, and again, I don't have the time to really beat it in, but I just wanted to cover it better than I did. So do they, do they think they're going to get, they're going to get into this wedding feast? They're going to somehow get by the doorkeeper? Who is the door? Who is God? Yeah, they, they think that. They're what? One more time. Oh, yeah, they lied about everything. 
That's correct. Dana is uh, reiterating um, that their oil, they lied about having oil. They never had any oil. It says clearly they didn't have any oil. And they lied about their lamps going out because they knew they didn't have... Everything they say is a lie and it is wicked. And the whole point of it is to kill as many sheep as they can. That's the plan. And he says so. Those who come before me are robbers and thieves and killers. So that's what they are. Have they no knowledge at all of the person and character of Jesus Christ? Yes, they have no knowledge at all. Yes, they don't know one thing that is truth about Christ. Not one thing. They are so blinded by their evil intentions, they think it's possible for the wise to give them their oil, which you cannot transfer salvation. They are so foolish, so blind that they think the oil could be purchased somewhere else. The oil has to be given. It cannot be sold. It is the blood of Christ. And they they are so blind and so foolish, they think Jesus God is going to open this door for them. And he says, I do not know you. And their, their foolishness is absolute foolishness. It is total black dark-mindedness. Ask this question, how did somebody get like this? So what does it mean when God, who is what? What is that Christ is described constantly as what in the Bible? He knows everything, knows all things. He's omniscient. There's nothing he doesn't know. Omniscient God says to these bridesmaids, I don't know you. Does that ever make you go, huh? How does omniscient God not know something? What does he mean there? What does it mean when all-knowing omniscient God says, I do not know you? Obviously, he does know them. They don't know him. There's uh, abounding irony right there, huh? So we'll deal with that next week, by the way. So where are we now? Taking medicine, looking at the clock on the chair. I should have looked at where it was when I started, huh? That would be really smart. But I don't do that very often. Okay. We are still battling the definition of lazy. I'm switching to another tract here. We're trying to figure out what lazy is still. I plan on giving you the definition today. How clearly am I planning on doing it? Not very clearly. That wouldn't be fair. Again, uh, I encourage you to read Louise, who is listening to sermons back in 2007 and asking me questions about them. Fortunately, I have a fantastic file system. I put all of my yellow pads, of which there's now thousands and thousands of them, in one pile. In no particular order. So it's no big deal for me to hunt through them. Okay, that's not true at all. I, I need to get letters from people who have read something within the last ten years. I guess this qualifies. But my, I'm losing my train of thought. Terithathy has said to me how many minutes I have to go. She came up and gave me a piece of paper. Is this still accurate? Is it? How long did it take you to come up and go back? Do I have to change it? I'll put it right here and look at it in 15 minutes. Will it still work? Probably not. 
we're still battling the definition of lazy. Matthew 25:26. Something I like to call the lion, the bull, and the thicket. Probably not going to be a book or a movie. Anyway, last week we read a little bit of Matthew 23, 13 through 39. We read verses 13, 14, and 15, where God, Christ, condemns the Pharisees. And we need to read a little bit more of that today. So let's go read Matthew 23, 29 through 39. Every now and then you should know that somebody comes to me or writes to me and says, I listened to the whole sermon or the whole lecture thinking, this doesn't fit together at all. And then the very last sentence you said made it all fit together. Now, I consider that the greatest accomplishment of my life when that happens. It doesn't happen very often, as you know. But every now and then, it is uh, possible that I do it, and uh, let's see if it happens today. Point is, is that I try to do it every week. That's bad news, isn't it? <laughs> okay, here we go. Matthew 23, 29. Woe to you. This is God talking to people. Now, we've talked about the hirelings. We've talked about the five evil bridesmaids. We've talked about all this stuff. And now we're going to read this. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous, and they're the ones that killed them. They're the killers. Let me go back. Because you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous and say, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partakers with them in the blood of the prophets. Liar. Therefore, you are witnesses against yourself that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. You're killers. Fill up then the measure of your fathers, serpents, brood of vipers, How can you escape the condemnation of hell? Therefore, indeed, I send you prophets, wise men, and scribes. Of them you will kill and crucify, and of them you will scourge in the synagogues and persecute from city to city, that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on the earth. All the righteous blood. Think about what he's saying to these men. From the blood of the righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Assuredly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. Calls them brood of vipers, which means they're the offspring of Satan. That's what he's saying. Elsewhere he says, your father is Satan. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophet and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. But you were not willing. Whoa. God is saying what? You are not what? Willing. What did God just say there? He says, you have a will. How much you've got, we'll debate that later. God says, willing. Just for fun, I threw that in there. See, your house is left to you desolate, for I say to you, you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Christ is declaring these men to be murderers, serpents, a brood of vipers, willful 
followers of Satan with full understanding of what that means. They're liars. Their desire is to convert as many as they can. Last week I read this. I read, uh, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel land and sea to win one proselyte, and then when he is one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. They make all that follow them in, into the thicket. Remember the thicket? They make you go into the thicket where they know you're going to die, and they make the ones they convert twice as much a son of hell. Which is an interesting question right there, isn't it? What's that mean exactly? Twice as much as a son of hell. As a math teacher, I immediately wanted to know how much is twice. Twice? Really? Why not three times as much? Why not ten times as much? Why did he, who's doing this? Who's saying this? God. Why did he pick twice? What does it mean, twice as much a son of hell? Made me ask this question. How much is once a son of hell? That sounds pretty bad to me. Now I got twice as much. We're going to have to investigate that, aren't we? When? <laughs> That's very good. Those of you on the internet, Bill the Cow said next year. That's very, that was you, wasn't it, Bill? <laughs> He'll, he will be, a, Greatly appreciated out there. Okay. <laughs> Notice the final words that he says, though. I can keep my train of thought now. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. God says to Israel, you're not going to see me until you say these words. This is all back to here, right? The sign of Israel. The sign of Israel is finally fulfilled, completely finished, when they say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Then that sign is done. That ends it. You will see me, you will not see me until you say that. And so when, when does Israel say those words? And why these words exactly? Of all the words he could have picked, these are the words that he wants. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. What's it mean? And, I, and most of you know this is Psalm 118.26. Psalm 118 was written by who? Moses. Psalm 118.27 says this. God is the Lord. What's that mean? Exactly what it says. I can reverse it. The Lord is God. God is the Lord. God is the one, therefore, who comes in the name of the Lord. The Lord comes in the name of God. Christ is the Lord. Christ is God. Christ is going to come in the name of God. God is going to come in the name of Christ. Now, what's the question next? What name is he coming in? God has many names. Which name is he using? Zechariah 13.9 tells us that Israel will call upon Christ. They, Christ says this to Israel. They will call on my name, and I will answer them. At the end of the sign of Israel, they're going to call on to Christ, and he's going to answer them. Israel will cry out, Hosanna. What's that mean? Save us. 
Save me. And Jesus Christ will answer them. He will save them. And he will say this. This is my people. And every Israelite that calls upon his name will say this in return. And each one will say, the Lord is my God. Again, the Lord is God. So what is it that Israel will understand? They will understand that Jesus Christ is God. And God will, and God, and that's right, finally. They will understand that. Save us God will be said to Christ and Christ will answer them because he's Jesus God, right? And But not all of Israel. See, this is an acknowledgement of the absolute Godhood of Christ. You can't find that in most denominations today. And you certainly can't find it in Israel. But it's critical. And it is what solves or what ends the sign of Israel. But not all of Israel is going to say that. All you have to do is look at our own country. Not all Israel are going to acknowledge that Christ is God. Many, on the other hand, actually, if not most, will refuse to say it. And we are watching this uh, manifest itself in our country, in our time. Many of Israel willfully and knowingly will say, the lion's going to kill us. Back we are to Proverbs 26, right? The lion, the bull, and the thicket. Many will say, the lion of Judah will kill us. And instead, where will they go? They won't go to Christ and say, you're God, save us. They will go where? Where are they going to go? They're going to go to the absolute opposite place. They're going to go to the other lion, the lion, the roaring lion that devours, the melding of a man and Satan. Many of Israel will worship the non-Christ as God. The opposite of Christ as God. Choosing certain death over certain life. That's what Israel is going to do. I don't believe it's going to happen in the nation of Israel in the Middle East. I think it's going to happen in the aggregate Israel. Dr. Fruchtenbaum says there's three kinds of Israel. Three kinds of Jews, if you will. There's apostate Israel, there's remnant Israel, and there's messianic or, I'm sorry, yes, messianic or saved, currently saved Israel. So I have saved Jews now. I have a remnant Israel that's the faithful remnant. They're going to cry out Hosanna, every single one of them. And I have apostate Israel, or pharisaical Israel. Pharisaical Israel is going to choose to worship the one who has one goal in mind for them, and that is to kill every single one of them. That's a certain death. They will choose willingly, knowingly, I believe in many cases, certain death over certain life. I think these bridesmaids, as, as um, Supper Dave brought up, think about these people. They're going up to the door. They're going up to where God is, and they're saying, open the door. Why? So we can go in and kill as many sheep as we can. Why would, why would anyone do that? How, much, how dark-minded are you to do that? Dave said they're worse than Pharisees. Well, that's not easy to do, to be worse than a Pharisee. Those are the people that make people twice the son of hell.
God calls this decision to choose certain death over certain life. He calls this, uh, you see, back we go to the motive of such who make this decision. God calls this choice, this willingness to choose death over life. He calls that lazy. That's his definition of lazy. When you choose certain death over certain life, you are choosing lazy. You are being lazy, sorry. And when you spread that choice, you are being wicked. Matthew twenty-five twenty-six: you wicked and lazy slave. It is lazy to choose certain death. It is lazy to live in continuous sin. It is lazy to pursue a life of constant sin. Does anyone... Does anyone who does so actually believe that God will not bring judgment to them? I have met many, many men and women who have poured themselves. I used to call it this way. You can open the door and look at the muck. A lot of people do that. Some people dip their foot into the muck and then they pull back and they shut the door and they turn and go the other way. But other people open the door and they run, they get a running start and they throw themselves into the muck. I've never met somebody in the muck that did not know that God would judge them. There's, does anybody really believe that God is not going to judge a non-stop, never-ending life of hedonism? Does anybody really believe that a non-stop, never-ending life of hedonism is going to end well? No, they don't. What will they tell you, those that have, are currently destroying their, their lives? I don't care. Pick your mess that you want to pick. What will the ones who are destroying their lives say to you when you come to see them? What's the first thing they will say? Hey, I'm having a great time. You come in here. And be just like me. Why do they do that? That's what they do. Wicked and lazy. I ask, who thinks like this? I ask that often. Clearly the answer is to that question is the overwhelming majority of people. And I use this all the time. You only go around once in life, right? Grab as much sin as you can. That's a popular commercial. I changed it just slightly. That's what they're saying to you. I go around once, destroy yourself in sin as much as you can, right? Grab it all. And all of that is a lie. You and, you and I have existence, by the way. We, therefore, are immoral. I'm sorry, immoral. Immortal. We're all immortal. We can never have anything but existence. We don't go around once. We stay around. There's no ceasing to exist. We always exist. It isn't about grabbing as much hedonism as you can. And by the way, choosing evil, grabbing evil, requires no thought. It requires no wisdom. It takes no energy. That's why it's called lazy. By the way, not a physical act, is it? Monistic, atheistic hedonism is the default position of humanity. The destination of those who will not think, who refuse to think, because to rationally consider the evidence is to reject the lies of evil. 
as the musicians in formation, that's the word I want, come forward. Next week we ask this question again, to repeat it. So how is it that one becomes twice a son of hell? How does that happen? What is that?